Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is about where is that in the Bible? It is a conversation this week about the Eucharist and where the Eucharist is in the Bible. One of the big feedbacks we got from our episode on Why Be Catholic was that some of our doctrines are not in the Bible. That was the accusation that came. And so I agreed to run a series of episodes on where is that in the Bible. And one of the big ones that came up, and it must admit it did come up for me when I was a brethren, is where do these Catholics and Lutherans get this idea of the real presence, the substantial presence, and this whole idea of the liturgy? Surely that's not biblical. And so we're going to start on that right away. I'm joined today by David Schutz, a colleague in both in Scripture Study and a former colleague in the Lutheran Church. Welcome, David. Hello. Well, good to be with you all. Yes, thank you for coming back. We've had this discussion many times. Now, David and I had it as Lutheran ministers as we were thinking about the Catholic Church, and we've continued to have it for the last 20 years or so since. So uh, this is just a rehearsal, really, of, of a huge and ongoing discussion we've had about the Eucharist, because it is a passion, as it should be for any Catholic. And to be honest, any Christian, uh, because it is a passion that's central to our Christian faith. So if I can begin, as a Lutheran, sorry, as a brethren, I was raised um, with the idea of Holy Communion being a remembrance and this big emphasis on the word remember. So Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. And that's why it's not actually about this mythical idea, we said, um, that the body and blood are really present. Um, now, this relies very heavily on the word remembrance. Now, one thing I was struck by when I learned Hebrew, admittedly it was as a Lutheran, but when I learned Hebrew, when you look at the text where the word remember is used, it's quite clear that remember means to act on or live out a some kind of agreement or relationship that you have. So when the Lord remembers Israel, he doesn't just go, oh, that's right, I left Israel down there in Egypt. He actually comes down to fulfill uh, the, you know, the relationship, the promise that he made. Uh, and so when we're remembering Christ in the Eucharist, we're not just calling to mind something as if we were there at the crucifixion, because we weren't. We are actually re-upping our membership in Christ. We are re-entering that moment, that relationship, the dynamic, the, the feast of salvation, which he initiated in the Last Supper there. This remembering goes way back to Leviticus in and the description of the sacrifice, the daily sacrifice that happened in the temple. And I remember, I don't know if you had Dr. Kleinig in uh, yes. Lutheran Seminary, David, but I remember Dr. Kleinig telling us about this and fireworks going off in my head, realising before it even said it out loud, this is precisely the liturgy that's described in, in Leviticus is precisely the liturgy of the Mass in the sense that it flows through without the word, the liturgy of the word, but that it flows through the sacrifices in the way that we um, have experienced it now. You have the the burnt offering, you have the cereal offering, which is the offering for the, the priest's food, and then you have the fellowship offering, which they eat and, and receive the benefits of the sacrifice. Now, we have all of these things built into the liturgy of the Mass. And I remember realising at that moment that the liturgy of our Mass and, and often the Eucharistic celebrations of Protestant churches are not invented at Trent or some other you know, later antiquity or even made up by the early church. They are an interpretation 
of that temple worship, which was prescribed by the mm. Holy Spirit to Moses on the mountain and now experienced through the reality of Christ being the perfect sacrifice. David, did you, you came at it from a slightly different perspective because you began as a Lutheran. I did have a different experience growing up as a Lutheran, and I, one of those differences is that I already had a full belief in the real presence, in the present that the uh, bread and the wine that we were receiving in the uh, Eucharist was the body and blood of Jesus. And I want to come back to that. But something you said right at the very beginning about the role of remembrance um, in your own upbringing, but also then in the scriptures, it's very important for us to pay a bit more attention to because it's easy for us to reject remembrance as um, as something that's a little bit airy-fairy. Right. But in fact, this... this there's two, and this is the uh, part of the problem, but part of the beauty of learning Greek and Hebrew is you do end up using these words. So, listeners, there is a Greek word anamnesis, which we have um, in amnesia, for instance, when you lose your memory, anamnesis. There's a Hebrew word, zikar, which means to remember, and zikaron, which is a memorial. Now, in the book of Joshua, uh, our listeners may remember when they Israelites crossed the Red Sea, a pile of stones, I think 12 big stones, one for each tribe, was put at that crossing point to as a reminder to the Jews, the Jewish people, I should say, the Israelites, of that crossing. And that pile of stones was called a zikaron, a memorial. It was a marker that was there to remind the people who lived in the present of the past when God saved them by bringing them through the water. Coming across the Jordan was a bit like a Red Sea crossing, again, the repeat of that. But it was also a reminder of them that this God who did that would do that again for them in the future. And whenever they had a doubt, all they had to look at is this really concrete pile of stones there. Now, Aquinas Oddly enough, Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Catholic um, scholar, picks this up when he says the Eucharist is a memorial, a remembrance. It's a remembrance of the past, of what God has done for us in Jesus. It's a remembrance here in the presence of what that Jesus is present here. But he has a funny way of talking, and our whole tradition has this, and so does the Jewish tradition. It remembers the future. Right. And says this is a memorial of what God will do yet to come. Um, so that is really concrete stuff. In that sense of remembrance, it's it's being part of a salvation history yes. and and to to join the people of God it, it draws us into the relationship they have with God. However, David, if I can pick apart that point there, I know that my brethren's brothers and sisters and and even some Lutherans would point to your words there and say that's fine. Everyone agrees that the bread and wine that we receive are physically there and that they are a signpost to the salvation of God. What we disagree on is whether or not this they are more than a signpost, that they are actually salvation in themselves, that they are, the, in fact, the body and blood of Christ in themselves, not just signifying well, those things. I, I think then the question that we're really asking ourselves is, what is it in this present thing that we do? 
what is it that connects us to both that real past and that real future? Is it just an idea in our heads or is there some reality that makes that connection? And this is where you, St. Paul's word is really important and he uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, I think it's around verses 14 or 17 where he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Yes. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Right. Now, this, this word participation, um, the, the Greek word is koinonia. We sometimes would, in a Latinized word, would be the word communion. Communion, when we say the word communion, in the Catholic theology, we use the word communion to talk about what God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy God, the Holy Spirit has, which yes, makes Yes, in other words, the, the unity of the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. We're not talking about something, un- some unreal thoughts or something here. We are talking about something so concrete. When we talk about the communion we enter into in the Eucharist, it talks about us entering into the Trinity, it, to being as close to the Father and the Son as they are to each other. Precisely that. And, and me as an individual, not only as an individual with God, but I do it as a communion with every other person who shares that Eucharistic fellowship with me across the world. Now, So now, can we just take a brief break from the argument here about the real presence and say yeah. we're talking here about the, what sometimes is crassly referred to as the vertical and the horizontal relationships of mm, the communion. I would say that is, now, crass, I, I, that is a bit crass because that's... Because I think it's an artificial separation, right. but it's often used in language. But basically the vertical relationship supposedly refers to our relationship with God and the horizontal relationship supposedly refers to our relationship with each other. But if we believe that St. Paul knows what he's talking about, as we, if we follow yep. the scriptures we do, and that we are participating yep. in the love of God in in the Trinitarian relationship, then we're not they're not separate things. That the communion I have with my brothers and sisters here in the altar rail is the communion that we share with Christ and the you know between yeah, the Father I, and the Holy it's Spirit. It's far more accurate to think of it as a, as everybody jumping into a big swimming pool together. <laughs> where that swimming well, pool is, let's is, not go down the uh, dodgy analogies that. route. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so this um, the question of participation might connect up with the Old Testament. Uh, again, in another way, and that's the question through the um, now the the boring bits of the Old Testament. I remember when we were kids, we had um, the practice of reading at in our home, reading the Bible through after as for devotions after dinner. Yes, yes. And when we got to the Book of Leviticus, we hit the boring bits. <laughs> But Leviticus- I'm horrified to hear you call it boring, but I, I understand the social phenomena you're talking about. It's just that this, I tell my students at the beginning of Old Testament that this is not only some of the most exciting parts of the Bible, but it is, in fact, if you don't understand Leviticus, you will not understand the Bible. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, so so, so go ahead. Things- What's so important about Leviticus? Okay, so let's think what they did when a, when a, a family or a community or offered a sacrifice at the temple and this is often not realized i mean most people understand that a sacrifice you take the animal you kill it you put it on the big holy barbecue that's called the altar um big thing about three meters by three meters by three meters with a fire in the middle steps up the side you throw the animal on the top 
In most cases, except for the whole burnt offerings, in most cases, what happened next was that the animal, which had been cooked on the holy barbecue, aka the altar, was then taken off, and you, your family, all gathered around and ate the animal that had been sacrificed. And you also invited in people, if you couldn't eat it all yourself, you invited in not just any old person, but you went out and invited yep. in those who could not themselves afford to be That's right. offered And sacrifices. usually the priests were involved in this as well. And this might be the only meat you would ever eat all year. But in any case, there you are. What are you doing? You are participating in the sacrifice and you are participating and they did in believe this by eating they believe that they received that the benefits of the sacrifice by the eating in the eating and, and catholics listening this is why the you in the eucharist the eucharistic sacrifice that is done by the priest the eucharistic action is completed by the priest eating the host not just it doesn't just finish with him saying the words and handing out the um the elements um, so just a point there too. Mm. It is a con it is an important part of the completion of the sacrificial act. Which is one of the times the bells go nuts. Yes. Whenever those bells go, if you don't have bells, something get bells big is happening. Women. Something big is happening. It's saying, <laughs> pay attention, folks. Uh, yes. Can I just take a step back to that Please. one, David? This Lots is this steps. is a side side story, but I wanted oh, to say actually, let me say too that I'm butting in all the time. It's a spiritual gift I have. There, there, <laughs> I didn't see that in the list. <laughs> the reason we're doing what we're doing at the moment, which is heading off in all directions like a supernova, is because this is the way Catholics do scriptural, scripture. Because yeah, it's we all see tied connections together. everywhere. Yes, keep going. Indeed. Now, I mean, the fact that the Eucharist is in, in the whole scriptures needs to be um, emphasised in so many different ways. We can't wrap it up in the one podcast. But we've talked about the liturgy described in Leviticus, um, and those of you who want to go more into that, uh, I teach a class in uh, Pentateuch at Notre Dame. You're quite welcome to come to that. But the Eucharistic feast is also um, reflected in the Passover sacrifice, mm. which is the redemption sacrifice of Israel coming out of Egypt. There's almost every sacrificial element, as the book of Hebrews in the New Testament points mm -hmm. out, is subsumed into the one perfect sacrifice of Christ. Now, I just want to make a point about that relationship. Lots of people, Catholics included, often make the mistake of thinking that because Christ has come along, everything else is obsolete. Mm. Now, it is true that we no longer sacrifice goats in the temple and and bulls and all those sorts of things. So please put your bulls and sheep back in the paddock. They're safe. What is true, though, is that these things have not stopped being true, that all the things we read in Leviticus and in all the Old Testament does not stop being true, but they are signposts to the one perfect sacrifice. Everything that's true about the Old Testament now is true of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And so studying the Old Testament, we come to a better and more perfect understanding, a more rich understanding of what we receive in Christ in the one perfect sacrifice, which is represented in the sure Mass. Connecting here with what we talked about last time when we talked about the spiritual meanings of Scripture. Mm -hmm. So this is bound up with the idea of partly the allegorical, which is the idea that things in the Old Testament can be types or models or patterns of things revealed in the New Testament. But part of all, this is also what's called the anagogical meaning, the spiritual meaning, where we're seeing forward from things in the past 
pointing through to newer and greater realities. Not that they've replaced them. This isn't supersessionism, for those of you who know that term, where we say all the stuff in the old covenant, that's gone, and now it's all been replaced mm. with the new covenant. But that the uh, the new covenant is the fulfillment and the embracement, um, it, basically the embracing of everything that God has already done. Yes. And it's not a leaving of it behind. It's a what did Jesus say? Not one word of the, the or jot or tittle of the law. Yes, and uh, by that he just didn't mean the text. He was talking about the meaning of everything that was done. When we talk about signposts, we're not yeah. just talking about things that that aren't true in themselves or that aren't anything in themselves mm. that point to Christ. The sacrifices in Leviticus, if you read Leviticus one to seven, you will see the repeated phrase: "In this way, the priest will atone for their sins, and their sins will be." forgiven so they're actual they received actual forgiveness through these sacrifices now they can only receive that forgiveness we know now by virtue of the sacrifice of christ uh, as the book of hebrews pointed out the goats wouldn't have done it the sheep wouldn't have done it but it was only god received these in virtue of christ but now that christ has come we now understand that some of the relationship that's involved here and some of the, the truth that's involved here because of what happened in the old testament yeah. Uh, temple. Do you know, I? you asked about my, uh, talked about our conversion experiences a little earlier on. As I said, as a Lutheran, I believed in the real presence. What we had a big hang up over was the whole issue of whether or not the Eucharist was a sacrifice. Yes. We emphasized that it was a sacrament by which we meant what God does for us towards yes. us, but not a sacrifice because uh, Luther wanted to say it isn't a work that that's right we human beings do back to God as if we could the, be involved in salvation in some way uh, yes as if uh, by the way this is just to pick up this going in all directions things if we pick up the word participation in the blood of Christ that means we are participants in the sacrifice that means that Christ, we have a part in the offering of the sacrifice of Christ. This is perhaps quite huge. But I, I was told when I was struggling with this by, of all things, an Anglican priest who later became Catholic, um, <laughs> <laughs> not su surprise, surprise, that my difficulty was I didn't know the book of Hebrews properly. Right. I had, didn't properly come to terms with the whole uh, business of Jesus offering himself as the sacrifice in the heavenly temple, that, that right. the sacrifice on the cross was this heavenly sacrifice that Jesus was offering. So, yes, there is a, the whole book of the Hebrews, the uh, whole book of Hebrews is one worth coming in, but you almost get it in one little verse in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, For our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Yes. And then the next verse, therefore, let us celebrate the feast. <laughs> he also, I mean, I Hebrews has it also in chapter 10. Um, yes. Can I, perhaps we're, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time, yeah. so I, I can't leave this topic without coming to the end of Luke's gospel, where Luke oh. has an opportunity. Luke oh. is speaking as a Gentile looking into the, yes. the kind of the, the church the Hebrew world through the church's eyes. Yeah. And yet when he comes to the end of the, his gospel, the famous road to Emmaus account mm. of the resurrection, this is peculiar for many reasons, but one of them is that 
he chooses to reveal to us, like to, to tell us about the resurrection through the eyes of two pretty ordinary disciples, one of which doesn't even have a name, the other one has names, but we don't. You know who that was? That was Mrs. Clopas. <laughs> let's, let's not go there for now. Home. They lived together, for goodness sakes. It was Clopas and Mrs. Clopas. Keep going. Let's not go there. The, <laughs> the next point, though, that I wanted to make about that is that he acknowledges that Christ first appeared to Peter and to other disciples, but he chooses not to give us those accounts firsthand. He talks about, through these ordinary mm. disciples who have lost hope and they're going home and they experience Christ first when he breaks open the scriptures for them. Mm. And that that their hearts burning with with excitement and in Moses new understanding and prophets and all the writings the three six, yes three readings what I wouldn't have given Sabbath, to be there in a Sabbath reading yes. indeed so it's the the reading of the word and then they recognize him they discern him they under, they comprehend him in the breaking of mm. bread mm. and then. He's, he's revealed to them and then he disappears. They go back and they Luke repeats this. He says he go, they go back to the apostles and they say, and they told him the whole story of how they spoke with him and how they recognised him in the breaking of bread. Now, that word is the one that comes up later in St. Paul uh, when he talks about he who eats and drinks uh, the body and blood of our Lord without recognising the Lord, without discerning uh, him in, the, in that. chapter 11, yes. Yes. Eats and drinks condemnation on themselves. Now, that's not to say it's some sort of, you know, magic spell that you've mm. got to get right. It's simply that this is, in fact, Christ giving himself to us. And when mm. we disrespect that, when we, we we do not receive it in the as the profound and amazing gift it is, then w there's a danger in that. The, the, the whole, I think it's Psalm 24, who can enter into the temple of the Lord, the one with clean Indeed. hearts and a pure, uh, clean hands and a pure heart? And, and 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 so there's the connection with the Old Testament scriptures again. Yep. Before we finish up, we need to say this: is that there is some almost hyperpiety in in some Catholic circles that says because this is such a precious gift, because this is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and as H. G. Wells is reported to have said, he wasn't a Catholic, but he said, if you Catholics believe what you say you believe, you'd enter the church on your knees and you'd never get up. I've heard that. And yet, now it's in very. It's a very powerful witness to the the glorious um, gift that God is giving him of Himself in the Eucharist. But if we take it too far and and start pointing fingers and asking who's worthy um, of this and what you have to do to be worthy, then we have to say, look, this is a sacrifice given for those, as it was in Leviticus, for those who have sinned, for those who need God's help, who need to be brought into communion with God, and therefore. It's um, a medicine, as the, I think Ignatius, mm -hmm. is it Ignatius who said that or Irenaeus? You're one of those guys. He called the Eucharist a medicine of salvation. Mm. Uh, now, it doesn't mean it'll fix everything in your life. We need to have confession for serious things. But I wanted to say- It's not a placebo, the by the way. <laughs> it's, it's not a placebo, but it's also not a prize. Yeah, yeah. It's not something you get if you've been good enough. It is a gift given by God for those in his communion to sustain us, to bring us into so that perfect given communion. so we that wonderful gift of the sacrament of, ref of reconciliation to prepare us, by which, again, yes. it is God's grace that prepares us so that we have the clean hands and the pure heart by which we can enter into the presence of Christ. Yes.
which is Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Let us, having therefore been washed and cleansed and purified, our hearts sprinkled, let us approach the throne, thro- sorry, the altar with You're doing this at the confidence. very end of the podcast. You're talking about the hearts being sprinkled, sprinkled with what? With the blood of Christ. <laughs> and it's Indeed. sprinkled where? Our hearts. Not externally yes. like it was for Moses in the Old Testament, but internally. And how Indeed. do we do that? By this participation in the cup. But this is not a new thing. I mean, King David has already preluded this kind of change of heart in his the confitior. The is it Psalm fifty one or fifty, mm, where he says, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit in me." He cast me not for your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So there's this entire desire, if you like, um, Lord. It's not enough that you correct my wrongs, but make me want the right. Make me want what is good, true and beautiful. Change my heart to be like yours. Mm. Um, And hence, we have a devotion to the Sacred Heart, which is very much tied with the Eucharist. All right, that's probably it for this week's podcast. We'll be back with some more discussion. If I might just say for anybody who is interested, um, together with a colleague of mine, Natasha Marsh, here in Melbourne, we've begun a uh, new Catholic adult education program called Anima Education, sponsored by the Catholic Women's League of Victoria and Wagga Wagga. And we're doing it on both hybrid, Zoom and face-to-face, so that the, anybody from across um, Australia or indeed the world can join in with our classes and I hope to be doing an introduction to the Bible at some stage during uh, August just look up the Catholic Women's League uh, of Victoria and Wagga Wagga website and you'll find details for that I highly recommend those particular programs, I've worked with David many times but also with that whole bunch and they're excellent people, anytime you can get into the scripture is fantastic, I'm very much enjoying my own online Bible studies on Monday nights and it's just a fantastic thing to share the scriptures and discover things. You don't need to be an expert. It helps to have someone guiding you, but you don't need to be an expert to, to explore. As long as you have somewhere reliable to go and ask your questions. But that's all for now. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. Mm-hmm.